On this episode of Hear Tell, a story about a memory lost and what happens to those who remember. Do you remember me, Harold? How do you feel today, Mr. Riley? Sir, do you know your name? Would you like a bath, sir? Cacophony of unending questions. Questions all day and into the night. Whispers. Quiet. Are you comfortable, Mr. Riley? Would you like breakfast? Is this a picture of your dog? What's your dog's name, Mr. Riley? Shuffling sounds. Whispers. Darkness. Good morning. How come you never eat your breakfast, Mr. Riley? Have they told you when you're going home, Mr. Riley? In 1971, Harold Riley underwent a brain surgery that would cost him his memory. He woke from anesthesia, not knowing where or who he was. His wife, Elaine, would be tasked with teaching him how to live in the world again. In 1971, writer Mark Shaven was a 14-year-old kid living in Atlanta. He read in his local newspaper about a 47-year-old man who could remember nothing about his life before doctors employed surgery to cure him of painful headaches and seizures. Mark would follow a career in journalism, working for newspapers and TV stations. He'd start a family and find success in his field. But the story of Harold and Elaine never left him. I read this article and I was just fascinated by it. I clipped it and I stuck it in the closet and every few years I would come back and I would reread it. Over decades, he gathered string by interviewing the Riley's friends and families and learning more than most need to know about how the brain works and how memory functions. In the past few years, Mark turned this lifelong reporting effort into a finished book manuscript called Unforgettable, Marriage, Memory, and Madness in a Small Southern Town. My name is Andre Gallant. I'm the host of Hear Tell, a podcast about true stories and how they get told. We're a project of the Low Residency MFA in Narrative Nonfiction program in the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. For this episode, I'm joined by Mark Shaven, who is a 2018 graduate of the MFA program. He currently teaches journalism at Georgia State University. And he's going to read a selection from his as-of-now unpublished book about Harold and Elaine. He'll also tell us plenty about how this story came to be told, how he came to tell it, and what the story has to teach us about writing and living a full life. The selection from your book that you're going to read for us today uh, opens in a hospital. But Harold and Elaine Riley had a much different life before this moment. Tell me about who they were. So Elaine was 16 years old when she met Harold. He spotted her in a church uh, courtyard. She was wearing a full-length chenille coat. And uh, he was struck by how attractive she was and immediately um, began asking her out and pushing her and pressuring her to marry him within within really months. And so um, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in 1941. Uh, he knew he was going to be uh, joining the service. And so he kept his campaign to get her to marry him, and on Christmas of 1941, they eloped. Justice of the Peace, or an ordinary as they called them, uh, married them, and then suddenly she was a young wife uh, living in a small home, uh, torn away from her family in a sense, all the children who she had helped raise as a second mother uh, because her own mother was ill, and she was 
by herself because her husband went off uh, to the service, and here she was alone. And I think, you know, what happens when people get married is they don't really necessarily know this person, particularly when they're young, this person who they're yoking their future to. And this was a man who ultimately over time would develop many, many medical problems. And she was a faithful wife. She took those vows seriously till death do us part in sickness and in health. And there was a lot of sickness. And so she stood by him. And I would say he was very lucky to have her. She is really the hero of this story. Why was it this story that you plucked away at throughout your career? What was it about Harold and Elaine? You know, I think there were a few things. One, when I saw the photograph in the newspaper of them, I was struck by this man looking at a photo album and knowing none of the people in the photo album this idea that you should return you could return home and not know any of the people in your house just seems somehow terrifying to me um, her devotion to him and trying to bring him back the way the community in some ways rallied around him the family pastor who would come and read him bible stories the 12 year old niece who taught him his abc's um, and some rudimentary math a retired school teacher who then picked up his re-education the clinical psychologist who tested him. there was just you know there's just this uh, when you you know you don't have your memory and you're 47 years old you have a lot of life ahead of you we're not talking about an older person with dementia. We're talking about a 47-year-old man. You know, you're too young to give up on life and you're too young for people to give up on you. And so here we are. Here's this man returned home, a stranger to his family, uh, a stranger to himself, and he's just starting at the beginning. That's an enormous challenge. And it's a challenge that you have to meet minute by minute of every day. The selection that you're going to read uh, begins when Harold is about to leave the hospital after um, suffering this severe memory loss. Walk us through um, the, the the few months before that. What happened to put him in this situation? Harold was a very difficult diagnostic case. Um, he had had a brain tumor uh, in 1959, a stroke in 1965, and then uh, he began to develop these profound headaches and seizures that would throw him out of his chair at work. And the doctors could not figure out what was going on until finally they performed these two very painful tests um, uh, to put air into his head or displace the cerebrosinal fluid and sort of figure out what was going on. He had fluid buildup in his brain. The interesting thing about his case is that less than a year after he had these two painful tests, the CAT scan came along, and that could have diagnosed this condition. But instead, he went through these painful tests and had brain surgery, and his wife feels like it was in that period between the air study and the brain surgery to put a shunt in his head to divert this fluid that he lost his memory. What else do we need to know about Harold and Elaine before you read us the selection? Yeah, I think what you would want to know about Elaine is that she was really uh, like a southern, uh, you know, like a steel magnolia. I mean, this was a woman who really was a mother to her county and then became a mother uh, to her husband. And in cases of, um, you know, brain injury, um, there's often this shifting of 
uh, roles in the family where uh, a spouse becomes a caregiver, a parent to another spouse. Um, there are issues of intimacy to ri- that arise, all kinds of things. But Elaine, you know, in and of herself is really, I think, a remarkable story. And so I think for anyone looking for a story about a real strong woman um, uh, with resilience uh, and a little bit of a psychological thriller, because this is sort of a story that's like Flanner O'Connor meets Oliver Sacks. It's sort of at that intersection. It's strange things that can happen in the mind in a Southern setting. And now, here's Mark Shaven reading a selection from Unforgettable, Marriage, Memory, and Madness in a Small Southern Town. March, 1971. Elaine was slumped in a chair in Harold's hospital room when he began to stir. He opened his eyes and she said good morning. He appeared bewildered. She asked how he was feeling but he barely responded. She was no more familiar to him than his nurses. Still, she was not that worried. His brain surgery was less than 24 hours ago, and she was certain the pieces would begin to fall into place. It would just take a little time. Elaine was sure Harold would snap out of it, but as more and more family members visited, including their son Mike, it became increasingly apparent that this was more than a mental fog. His mind was blank, He didn't even know enough to ask questions. Elaine showed him a picture of Sheba, their Chinese pug. They'd had her for six years, and he adored her, but he no longer remembered her. Elaine gave up trying to engage him in conversation. He was on pain medication and needed his rest. This was just as well. She still had an office to run and could not stay with him all the time. There was no written record of what Harold was thinking and feeling in those early days. Belaine and Mike gradually pieced together what was happening. He did not know who he was or why he was here. He was overstimulated and drowning in a sea of sensory information. Strangers came and went. Unrecognizable objects, like eating utensils, appeared and disappeared. Unfamiliar voices, snatches of conversation, approaching footsteps, distant laughter, beeping, ringing, clattering, and creaking sounds overwhelmed him. Then there were the unaccustomed smells of food he could not identify, tastes he could not remember, the surprising textures he felt on his tongue, faces loomed over his bed, peering at him, asking a cacophony of unending questions. Do you remember me, Harold? How do you feel today, Mr. Riley? Sir, do you know your name? Would you like a bath, sir? Questions all day and into the night, and then darkness, eyes closed, shuffling sounds, whispers, quiet then daylight again, and more questions. Are you comfortable, Mr. Riley? Would you like breakfast? Is this a picture of your dog? What's your dog's name, Mr. Riley? Strangers in and out of the room all day. Food trays came and went, hardly touched. The light fading again outside. The lights brought down in his room. Shuffling sounds, whispers, darkness, and another wrenching delivery into daylight. Good morning. How come you never eat your breakfast, Mr. Riley? Have they told you when you're going home, Mr. Riley? Harold had no recollection of the painful headaches that put him in the hospital, no memory of the two excruciating tests that made him want to cry out and vomit. The doctor strapped Harold to a somersaulting chair and pumped air into his brain, then rotated the chair to disperse the air and take x-rays. 
The x-rays confirmed that cerebrospinal fluid was building up in the four interconnected cavities of his brain. One week later, Harold underwent surgery to place a shunt in his head to divert the excess fluid into his heart. By conventional standards, the surgery was successful. Harold's headaches were gone, but so was his past. On the third morning after the surgery, Harold's favorite nurse couldn't help but notice he never ate his breakfast. He had yet to even open his carton of milk and pour it over his oatmeal, so she did it for him, explaining in an offhanded way what it was. She also showed him how to use the big tablespoon on his tray. From then on, he knew it was called milk, and he did exactly as she instructed. Ten days after Harold's shunt surgery, an orderly helped him out of his pajamas and into a bathtub. He did not know this body of his and could not have identified its various parts. He did not know how to bathe. Slowly and with the orderly's help, he lowered himself into the water, an odd and unfamiliar sensation. The orderly showed him how to put soap on a rag and wash himself. After a few minutes, he helped Harold dry off with a towel and helped him into his clothes. He buttoned his shirt for him and zipped his pants. Harold was going home. For the duration of his six-week hospital stay, time crawled by, but now the pace accelerated. While Harold dressed, Elaine gathered up the rest of his belongings. There was paperwork to sign, and a clerk handed Harold a pen. He was able to scrawl his signature, but did not know that his middle initial stood for Edward. Elaine was handed the prescriptions she would need to fill before they left the hospital. She brought the car around and got Harold settled in the front seat. His mother, Geordie, climbed in the back. Elaine left them to fill Harold's prescriptions at the hospital and pharmacy. Haldol, an antipsychotic. Elevil, an antidepressant. Nembatol, a sedative. And Dilantin, an anti-seizure medication. When Elaine returned to the car, Harold was smoking a cigarette, and his mother, Geordie, was tapping the ashes into a paper cup. Harold and Elaine had owned the car for a year, but he couldn't find the ashtray. And yet he remembered how to smoke. Almost as soon as he came out of surgery... Either Geordie or Elaine had put a cigarette in his mouth to calm him. He had no trouble managing it. Did he mimic the other patients in his room? Was smoking a subconscious memory layered on top of a pre-existing craving for nicotine? Or was it second nature, like muscle memory, like walking? As Elaine eased the car onto busy Claremont Road, Harold reared back, terrified, covering his face with his hands. He thought every car headed their way was going to plow into them. He cowered in the front seat the whole way home. As they got closer to the house, Elaine asked if he knew what road they were on, if he knew where they were. She clung to the hope that something would tap a memory. Surely when we get home, he will recognize where we live, she thought. But he didn't. He didn't recall ever having seen the house before. Their Chinese pug was out in the grass. She appeared to be patiently awaiting his return. There's Sheba! said Elaine, her voice lifting. She had no doubt he would recognize his beloved dog. That's like the picture you showed me, he said, without a trace of emotion. When she ran to meet him, he ignored her. Elaine walked Harold across the carport, led him to the door, and unlocked it. She opened it for him, but he hesitated before stepping inside. Which way, he asked.
the first few days after Harold returned home without his memory were confounding. Not just to him, but to Elaine and Mike. Harold had no direction or purpose to give structure and meaning to his days. This was understandable at first. He was recovering from brain surgery. But days and weeks without any return of his memory began to stretch interminably toward an unknowable future. Harold sat for hours in his armchair, smoking cigarette after cigarette, listlessly staring into space, waiting for Mike or Elaine or his mother, Jordy, to stroll into the room and engage him or invite him into the kitchen for lunch or supper. Harold's smoking was a big concern. Elaine wished he had never been given a cigarette in the hospital. It was a lost opportunity to break a bad habit, and now someone had to be with him at all times to make sure he didn't burn the house down. And then there were his incessant questions, his craving for guidance, and his constant need for reassurance. Harold's cluelessness made spending time with him an interesting chore, but a chore nonetheless. Mike became a father figure to his own dad, answering questions and voicing cautions. Hold the railing when going down the stairs. Don't smoke in bed because you might fall asleep and start a fire. He did as he was told without complaint. An obedient child locked inside the body of a middle-aged man. Douglasville, Georgia, was still a relatively small town in 1971. Douglas County's overall population had just passed the 50,000 mark, but the heart of the town had not changed much since Elaine was a girl growing up there. The courthouse and stores lined one side of Highway 78, and the railroad tracks ran down the other. There were three clothing stores, a cafe, a barber shop, a few beauty parlors, a movie theater, a couple of doctor's offices, an insurance officer or two, a Western auto store, a couple of 10-cent stores, and a drug store. The Rileys were part of the bedrock of this tight-knit community. So as gossip spread that Harold Riley had come home from the hospital without his memory, a steady stream of curious visitors just had to see for themselves. Some dropped by bearing homemade pies and well wishes. Others brought a dose of wiseacre skepticism. All left confused and unsettled, some of those who were the most unnerved were family members. Like the first time his dad visited, Harold's parents were divorced, and Alvin, his father, had not been to the hospital to see his son. One evening, a few weeks after Harold came home, his father and stepmother came by to get reacquainted. Elaine explained to Harold that this was his father, and Alvin tried to get a conversation going, but Harold couldn't talk about anything other than the hospital. Harold also believed that Mike was his father. Elaine tried to explain what a father was in simple terms, telling Harold that a family was made up of a father and a mother and children. But there was nothing simple about it. The word children meant nothing to Harold. He had no recollection of what they were, of having ever met any, or where they came from. The day after his father visited, Harold was perplexed. I know you told me he's my father, he said, but what's his name? Elaine took nothing for granted after that. When she introduced Harold to his old friends, the reactions were often more interesting than his. He would say he was glad to meet them, but they were taken aback. Many were friends for decades, 
If a visitor swore, he knows me, Elaine became protective and pushed back. No, he doesn't, she insisted. He's had brain surgery. His memory is gone. His mother, Jordy, took a different approach, more like tough love or shock therapy. She stayed with Harold while Elaine worked and was convinced he would recognize someone. When friends stopped by, she refused to introduce them. She allowed strangers to get within inches of his face. They stared and tried to goad him into recognition, which frightened him. Eventually, he confided to Elaine that he felt more secure with her than with his mother. The constant parade of visitors was an adjustment for 25-year-old Mike as well. He was something of a loner, liked to keep to himself. He moved back home to help out, but he wasn't used to being around so many people. He opened the door to frequent visitors from Harold and Elaine's church. They talked to Harold the same way they talked to their children. I asked Mike if those visitors felt sorry for his father. People didn't express pity, I don't think, not to him. Mike said, to mother and me, well, not pity so much as how miraculous they thought the whole thing was. They thought it a wonder that he had lived, having gone through it all. Every day, Elaine and Harold took long drives with no particular destination in mind. A few weeks after Harold came home from the hospital, they were out in the car when Elaine pointed to a field. There's some cows, she said. That's where our milk comes from. Harold was perplexed. A nurse had poured milk over his oatmeal at the hospital. I thought it came from cartons, he said. Though Harold and Elaine's drives often lacked direction, there was purpose behind their excursions. Elaine knew Harold couldn't remain indoors every day, smoking and fielding visits from well-meaning friends. If they had any hope of resuming a normal existence, she had to familiarize him with his surroundings and rebuild his life, one memory at a time. And yet the workload at her office was also demanding. As director of the county's Department of Family and Children's Services, she was responsible for the welfare of the most vulnerable members of her community. More often than not, she returned home exhausted, and that's when her second shift began as Harold's teacher, tour guide, caregiver, and partner. She drove him all over the county, reacquainting him with points of interest. They drove down country lanes, along city streets, on major thoroughfares. He had overcome his fear of oncoming cars, and these outings became one of his favorite activities. He had his coat on, ready to go the moment she walked through the door. On one of these outings, she parked in front of a dime store and told Harold to wait in the car. She would only be a moment. He had his back to Highway 78 and the railroad tracks beyond. Elaine was standing at the cash register when she heard the shrieking whistle of a passing train. She spun around just as Harold ducked under the dashboard. She rushed outside and opened the car door. He was crying and shaking with fear. He had not seen the train. He did not know where the noise was coming from but he was certain it was coming his way. Elaine calmed him, but felt completely ineffectual. It was impossible to anticipate everything. On another occasion, she took him with her to a shopping mall. She told him to sit on a bench in front of the store. On the way home, he was upset. He had overheard an ugly, disparaging conversation about black people. Until then, he was oblivious to skin color. Some excursions produced eye-opening surprises like the time Harold and Elaine and her parents 
parked in front of a fabric store in nearby Powder Springs. Harold waited in the car while the two women went inside, and Harold's father-in-law wandered off to buy his 47-year-old son-in-law an ice cream cone. In the few minutes Harold spent by himself, he saw something so perplexing, he brought it up the next day when Elaine was cooking lunch in the kitchen. You know what? He said. Yesterday, when we was at that store, I saw some little bitty people. You did, said Elaine. Uh Uh-huh, and they was just laughing and playing. Those were children, said Elaine. Would you like to see some more little people? He nodded. Elaine picked up the kitchen phone, called one of her sisters, and invited her to come by for lunch with her husband and two children. On the way over, the children's mother explained that even though their uncle was big like a grown-up, he was little like them. Harold was awestruck when the children walked through the door. Here were tiny replicas of people like him. He was too shy to say much and hardly touched his food. The children did not ask a lot of questions. Stephen, the older of the two, was only six. He had dark brown hair and brown eyes. He was smart and serious and interested in almost everything. He could name every car on the road. Donna was three and just beginning to blossom. She was not bashful and approached Harold and stood by his chair. Sheba, the Chinese pug, was a good icebreaker. Harold had warmed to her, and Sheba loved children. She wouldn't leave Stephen and Donna alone. By the end of the visit, the children were at ease with Harold, and his shyness fell away. Afterwards, he offered his frank appraisal of little people and of himself. I like them because they don't know much either. Elaine stopped at the Douglasville post office to pick up the newspaper. It was a Thursday afternoon, the third week in April, 1971. She fed her change into the newspaper box and pulled out a copy of the Atlanta Journal. She had tired of explaining Harold's condition and had agreed to let a reporter tell their story. It was to appear in that day's edition. She carried the paper into the post office and placed it on the counter to look for the story. She did not expect it to get prominent play, so she started at the back of the paper and paged forward. As she got closer to the front, she figured the article didn't make that day's edition. And I turned over the front page, and there it was, Elaine said. Years later, she would still marvel at her family's sudden notoriety. Our pictures and everything was right on the front page of the Atlanta Journal. Of course, Harold was tickled about it, It really pleased him to hear it read, and after that our lives were a lot easier because people understood that he really didn't know them. Part of Elaine's charm was that she could maintain her enthusiasm in the face of such difficulty. She also sustained a sense of wonder at the novelty of their situation. He has merely lost his memory. His basic personality has not changed, she told the reporter. He has always been thoughtful and complimentary, and he still is. A photograph accompanying the article conveyed just how disconnected Harold was from his past. He was seated in his favorite armchair, 
presumably a place of comfort and security, a worried look etched into his face. Elaine and Mike looked on as he paged through a photo album, one still life after another, as if to prod his memory of what came before. There was a symmetry in that newspaper photo, a kind of closed family circle, everyone intently looking in the same direction, as if trying to unravel a mystery, the last vestiges of a shared past. No one smiled. All eyes were cast downward. There was a solemn dignity in their proximity to one another. Mike resembled his mother, his features soft like hers. The two of them had similar expressions. Harold, on the other hand, appeared bewildered. His mouth tapered into a frown. Only his wedding ring and a cigarette angered him to his past. Thanks for sharing that story with us. Thank you, Andre. What happens to Elaine and Harold after this series of events in 1971? So this is just the beginning of this memory loss. Um, And so what unfolds after that is this effort to sort of bring him back, to raise him up, to try to tap into his memories, any kind of memory that might exist. And so after uh, a period of time snatches of memory start to come back. You know, when he doesn't have his memory, there's this period of wonder. There's a visit to Santa Claus so he can tell Santa Claus in the department store what he wants for Christmas. There's the first visit to a zoo and that eye-opening experience of seeing those large animals for the first time. Um, um, You know, going to a farm, these kinds of things. Discovering a bird's nest in a crepe myrtle uh, bush or, um, you know, things like that. So there was the excitement of sort of experiencing things anew with him as he's sort of living this second childhood. But then he begins to have dark kinds of dreams about his earlier life and begins to have these snatches of memory return. And Elaine isn't quite sure what is going on here. And so the book takes a turn away from the memory loss to this sort of darker place. Your relationship to this story begins as a teenager, becomes a project in college, stays with you through a career in broadcasting, and and now uh, into a career in teaching. How did you research and report this story over such a long span of time? So... As you can imagine, I picked it up, put it down, picked it up, put it down. You know, I did all these initial interviews with, you know, all these family members and friends and the clinical psychologist, the pastor, on and on it goes. And then um, over the years, I would keep returning to Elaine's house and interviewing her some more, um, interviewing the son, Mike, some more. Um, You know, I put it down. I'd pick it up again. I'd get back in touch with the family. We'd talk some more. And um, what happened was when I uh, went back to school with the idea of just writing this book, um, you know, with some guidance, 
um, I decided I've got to go back to some of these people if I can find them and just see if they have any enduring memories of this period of 40 years ago. So I reconnected with the son who when I first met him was uh, 30, now he's 70. I reconnected with the the young girl who tutored him when she was 12. I met her when she was 17. I came into the story some years later. But now she's in her 50s and is a retired school psychologist. I reconnected with the family pastor who was just beginning his pastoral career when he crossed paths with the Riley family. And now he has the long view of having, you know, retired from, you know, uh, you know, pastoring in the Methodist church. And he has some interesting things to say about that. Uh, what I found that was the most interesting thing to me was that in some cases, they didn't have specific, you know, um, memories of events, but they had memories of sort of global memories of how they felt being around him and being around Elaine. And so here I was coming as like a messenger from the past with the direct transcripts of our conversations. And it was like I was introducing themselves to someone they had never met before, and yet they had shared these memories. And so this is, in a way, it's sort of a longitudinal study of memory, in a way. It's a, it's a memory story wrapped within memory. You know, it's a story about the durability of memory over time. It seems like a little bit of a wild project to to keep all of that stuff organized. One is just uh, as bits of information and then organized in terms of a story. Did that present challenges to you? Well, I was, you know, you know, the first time I, I tried to write this book, I did it as uh, an oral history in which I took all the interviews and I kind of uh, I weaved them together, uh, you know, one leading into another, into another, into another. So I had a really great foundation of all these interviews preserved um, from, you know, when I interviewed these people on cassette tapes. So um, I had a good starting place. But what I had to tap back into was my feeling, you know, at 19, 20, 21, 22, you know, being around these people. Where was I in my life at that time? You described the story as, as, as one of a, a study of memory wrapped around a story of memory loss. What was it about this concept of memory that was so important to you? I think it's just the key to everything we are. You know, we have our body and we have our mind. And without our mind, our body is nothing. And if you don't have a memory, you, haven't, you don't have a future or a past, you know, because the future is built on the past. You know, what you do tomorrow is built on what you did, you know, today or yesterday. And if you have no basis, no foundation to go forward, how do you even begin to step into your own future? Was this interest your 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 fascination with memory? Did you develop it by writing the book, or 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 were you this hooked on it before? It's a great question. I'll tell you what I think happened, Andre. When I was, you know, a boy, uh, we lived in a, an apartment complex in Atlanta, and um, there was a child a little bit older than I was who was riding a skateboard and fell off it and hit his head and lost his memory. 
And I always remembered this story. And I remembered looking up. They had a second floor apartment. Looking up once and seeing him in a window and having him sort of wave tentatively to me. And me, you know, sort of waving back and thinking, that boy doesn't know who he is. I really think that my interest in memory was seeded by that event in my own childhood. This idea of who are you without memory. How big was the the knowledge base that you had to build scientifically to be able to get to that intimate Southern story? So I had all these medical records. You know, when I first approached Elaine Riley about this story, um, the doctors would not respond to my uh, letters. You know, this is before email, obviously. You know, they wouldn't respond to me at all. So then Elaine reached out to them and got all of his medical and psychiatric records. And so um, I had those to go through. Um, I had to do research about shunts and hydrocephalus and memory. You know, memory uh, is, you know, um, I suppose we understand more than we knew 40 years ago, but it's still incredibly uh, complicated to fathom how our brains organize, you know, memory, you know, with neurons and synapses and how we with we recall things. You know, my own feeling is that it's all up there in our minds, every memory. It's just that we don't all have the we don't have all the pathways to go back to those memories. You know, there have been studies where people have had their brains stimulated and they'll remember things from the past. Elaine Riley got letters from people after her story appeared in the newspaper, other hydrocephalus uh, and shunt patients, you know, one of whom said you know, he could suddenly remember everybody in his sixth grade class and where they were sitting. Um, so, you know, that I think goes to this idea that it's all up there, but can we access it? So I had to do a lot of reading about memory research, you know, not just when I was in college, but now more contemporary studies about memory. Early in the selection that you read, um, you write that Harold was overstimulated and drowning in a sea of sensory information. And what follows uh, in your writing are, are short, tense flashes of stimuli, um, those disembodied questions mm -hmm. that keep coming at him. Um, how did you think through and eventually decide how to write about that pivotal time in his life? Well, you know, I, I felt like that was so critical to everything that I needed to find some way to sort of uh, convey that to the reader. And so there was, as I say in the book, no written record. You know, So it's my way of saying to the reader, this is my best idea of what those early hours and days were like uh, with all this coming at him in the hospital. I mean, you know, but but it's grounded in, you know, the, the, the information I got from the family, you know, putting a cigarette in his mouth as soon as he came out of surgery. I mean, can you imagine in a hospital today? I mean, first of all, there's no smoke in hospitals, right? But coming out of surgery and the first thing your spouse does is put a cigarette in your mouth to calm you. Um, so, you know, there was a fair amount of detail I got from the family. The way it reads mm -hmm. um, with the rhythm of the sentences, mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the brevity, um, uh, the quickness in which you write, it almost feels that you're being bombarded by it yourself as a reader. Mm -hmm. As a writer, were you able to take all those little details, those little snippets of, from your reporting? Could you step, did you try to step 
into Harold's position then and feel oh, all that coming at you. Yes. Tell me how you did that. You know, that it was it was hard to, uh, you know, thinking back, hard to figure my way through that because it was such a critical part of the story that I felt like, well, you know, you know, I had to think, how would I feel? You know, what would that be like? How would I feel, for instance? You know, how would anyone feel? You know, it's very disconcerting if you've ever had surgery to come out of anesthesia, you know, and really have no, you know, that kind of memory loss is very common, you know. But to have that go on and on um, and having things coming at you, I mean, if you can imagine what it's like, you know, if you've ever had anesthesia um, coming out of that, uh, but have that prolonged over a period of <laughs> really, you know, those 10 days in the hospital and then past that, uh, I really wanted the reader to feel what, what Harold, I, what I felt Harold was feeling, just inundated, knowing nothing, you know, um, uh, not understanding any of the routine of a given day, that it begins with breakfast, it ends with dinner and sleep, you know. He had nothing to order his world. So, so you mentioned this idea that that memories and stories change with each retelling, and this was a story that you went back to again and again and again, and maybe in many ways retelling it over and over and over again, learning something new about it each time. But what, over the years, did you learn about yourself through that act? Well, I've questioned, you know, my own sanity a little bit, first of all, that I've spent so much time with this story. Um, but I'm um, a determined uh, person who doesn't let things go. I mean, I, f I think that uh, – Elaine's dedication to her husband really resonated with me and, uh, you know, gave me a sense of purpose in my own life to share her story because she was so uh, sharing of it with me, these long evenings sitting in her den, telling me her innermost thoughts and secrets. Um, I felt like, how can I betray that? You know, uh, I need to give her voice and her life some permanence. Um, and so I felt she just, I don't know, taught me the value of dedication, determination, love, um, devotion, um, how to treat others, uh, and, you know, what's the best use of our lives. So I guess it's probably a good thing that you started working on this story so many years ago, because those aren't lessons you would want to come to at the end of your life. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, I was lucky to cross paths with Elaine um, and to have her invite me into her life. It just changed my whole life. Maybe it was like so many years ago, Elaine, in a way, was one of the first people to give you permission, you know, permission from outside yourself to do this thing that you wanted to do with your life, which was tell stories. And in a way getting back now and finishing the book is a resolution to that gift she gave you. I think that's true. I think that um, um, when somebody shares their story, it's like an enormous gift. But it's also a gift to listen 
and to take in a story. And so it's this it's this this give and take that we don't see enough these days. You know, she gave me a gift in trusting me with her story, and I'm trying to give that gift back all these years later by getting her story out into the world. Well, I guess I should thank you for sharing this small portion of Elaine and Harold's story with us. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Make sure to subscribe to Hear Tell on your favorite podcast listening service. To learn more about this podcast, and the Low Residency, MFA, and Narrative Nonfiction program at the University of Georgia, please visit www.grady.uga.edu slash hear hyphen tell. That's H-E-A-R. This episode featured music by Trifine, Lobo Loco, Los Mirnuls, Big Mean Sound Machine, and Matt Woodmore. We'll be back soon with another true story. <laughs>